Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, well, welcome to the show. You know, being a mother, and I don't know what it's like to be a mother, obviously, but I'm a father, but I can tell you that being a mother does mean you'll do anything and everything you can to help your child. And I think for the most part, being a father is the same way, but that even means changing careers. And Debbie Stafford's disabled daughter was so sick, and after multiple medical visits, they weren't getting any answers to help her on her path to healing. So, Debbie decided to become a nurse practitioner. Now, by becoming a nurse practitioner, she wasn't just able to help her daughter, but now as a direct primary care provider in Knoxville, Tennessee, she can help other families with their medical needs. And the reason she became a direct primary care provider was because after working with patients on insurance and seeing how insurance got in the way of the doctor-patient relationship, she didn't want that interference between her and her patients. So by not having insurance interfering with treatments, Debbie and her patients, they can look at a more holistic approach to their treatment. And to help her business grow, she's working on trying to get scope of practice passed in Tennessee. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well which would allow her to operate her clinic without a collaborative doctor. Debbie Stafford, thanks for coming on the show today. And uh, thanks for talking about what it's like to be a direct primary care provider and how it's benefited your community. Appreciate you being with us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah. So first thing I want to do is let's talk about uh, direct primary care. There may be some people who hear that don't know what it means. It's it's kind of a different way. And, and there's lots of people doing this now across the country. Some states allow it, other states don't. And that's one of the barriers that is put up. But tell folks what direct primary care is. So to explain what direct primary care is, kind of have to explain what the traditional insurance model is. Um, if you want to go to a primary care provider before you are ever seen, that office has to collect your insurance information. They have to call the insurance company and find out what kind of benefits there are, if they're covered in network or not. Um, if they are in network, what kind of copayment or is there a big deductible? They have to try and collect whatever fee it is up front so they don't end up billing. They may turn you away because you're not in network. And you go through all that before you see the primary care provider. With my model, direct primary care, you call up, you, you schedule your visit, you walk in the door, um, we take you straight back, we see you, we discuss the health issue, we discuss a plan of care, and then you walk out front, you pay your $80, or if you're an infant, zero to 12 months, your parents pay $60, and that's it, you're out the door. Yeah, so this really is a way to, to have insurance companies not dictating the care, the, the kinds of treatments, the kinds of medicines, and things like that. This is really more... Uh, the, the healthcare provider and the patient working together on their healthcare, right? Correct. If you are uh, contracted with an insurance as a primary care provider, they will come in and audit your charts. They determine whether or not what you did was proper or improper. They will demand refunds. They will tell you you can't do that. Um, if you take insurance and a patient wants a certain test, then you 
uh, really need to know up front, is the test covered, is it not? Otherwise, you get a nasty note from the insurance company that you are uh, that you are ordering tests that aren't necessary. And if that continues, then you could be in big trouble and that could be insurance fraud. Um, without the involvement of insurance, I get to decide and my patient decides with me because I'm a very collaborative care model how we want to proceed on a treatment and then we just do it. Right. Yeah. And it, 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 it works for people. This is again, something that may not work for everyone, but, but some people might like that more traditional insurance-based model, but that's their choice. This is about uh, other people's choice as well. Now I want to ask you, tell me a little bit about the medical journey that you had with your daughter and, and how that kind of started you on the path to becoming a nurse practitioner. Sure. Well, she started having these episodes of just violently throwing up out of the blue and I would take her to the hospital um, because it was beyond something that we could see primary care. They would do some labs. Her labs would be just crazy off. They call it metabolic acidosis. They would give her IVs. They would admit her um, and they would they would try to stabilize her. And at first it was one or two days. Then it got to be two to three days. Then it got to be a little bit longer. And they looked at me and said, we don't really know what's wrong with her. We think it might be something genetic. Now, mind you, this was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot's changed. And they said, we think you need to see a kidney doctor. And I'm thinking, why a kidney doctor for something genetic? Like nothing they said made sense. And so they said, take her home. And at that time, I had an associate's degree in accounting. And I was not medical. And I was afraid when I took her home, she was going to die. And I can't explain to you the fear and the panic of having a little six-year-old child that's very small for her age that has disabilities. And you think when you take her home, she's going to die and no one will do anything. I stood in the room, I begged them to run every test they knew. Um, You know, I even brought up my insurance. We have this insurance and, you know, it's good coverage and please just don't send us home to let her die. And so they sent us home and praise God, she didn't die. She's 23 years old now, but... Um, That began a journey of me going up and down the East Coast to try and find her care because there wasn't proper care here in Knoxville. And that day that I thought she was going to die, um, I told my husband, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be a nurse practitioner because at that time there wasn't a medical school in Knoxville. Um, And I just felt like I'm going to go get prescriptive authority. So when my child needs something, I'll understand what she needs and I, no one will tell me, no, I'll just do it. Obviously, I've learned a lot since then and that I can't just do that for my child. I have to have a provider for her. But that was what pushed me into going down that path. Well, that, and what, a, what an incredible story. So you were in accounting. You were an accountant at, at the time. Yes. And, you know, this is happening to your daughter. And I, I think there have been a lot of parents that go through this, right, where, uh, they they have some their child has some medical issue it can't it's just not easily solvable and and that's one of the problems in our current medical system is there's things that are just chronic and it it's it's tough to if you think inside a box to figure out what that is but I don't know how many parents are dedicated enough to decide well I'm just going to change careers in order to start getting these answers but but thankfully you you did that and it's quite a story. So, um, so after you did this, what, what is it that made you decide to open a direct primary care clinic instead of just kind of going to work for, why, why didn't you just go to work for a doctor's office? 
Well, I actually did. Um, I, I, I was hired by a company that was nurse practitioner led a primary care clinic. We saw predominantly Medicaid patients and I love my patients. Um, I love taking care of quote the poor, which so many Medicaid patients are. Um, they're so grateful for care, but um, they laid me off because they were having financial trouble. And at that point, I, I just I told my husband, I said, I think God's telling us to open a clinic. And this part I didn't mention, there had been a vacant building in front of my kids high school. I actually have three daughters and I would drive past there every day, even before I was a nurse practitioner. And I would pass it and go, you know, that'd make a great place for a clinic. I said that so often that my children started calling it mom's clinic, even though it was a vacant building. Mm -hmm. So I got laid off. I told my husband, I said, I think it's time to open the clinic. And he's like, are you crazy? You just got laid off. We have no money, you know? <laughs> and I walked past that, that vacant building and I called. And so it, it ended up being available. We ended up moving in there. I just felt like I had to do this. I felt like it was part of my destiny. And thankfully I had a husband that was very supportive and, willing to let me fly. <laughs> yeah. So through all of that, you were able to, to work with your daughter and, and get her to a better place health-wise, right? Correct. We ended up seeing a specialist in um, actually in Maryland who found that she had some metabolic issues and he helped us correct those. And then we eventually landed with a mitochondrial specialist down in Georgia, who is one of the leading mitochondrial specialists and found that she has what's called complex four mitochondrial disorder. Um, and it's not full on mitochondrial disease, like the worst of the worst, praise God for that. But her body just doesn't make energy like it's supposed to. And because it doesn't make energy like it's supposed to during times of illness, or stress, um, her body can go haywire really quick. So knowing that, knowing the nutrients to support that and, and trying to keep a close eye on her to make sure that she's where she needs to be is the best way to manage her condition. But it took going up and down the East Coast, gosh, probably $100,000 or more in medical bills to try and figure that out. And no one in this area even knew what mitochondrial disease or disorder was. Yeah. So let's talk about some, maybe some of your other patients as well, right? Because this this was about your daughter, but then you saw that this would benefit other people in the community and you've had patients come to you. How, how, how have you had other patients maybe that have benefited from coming to you as a direct primary care provider? Well, I've been able to help a ton of people without insurance. Um, you know, when you don't have insurance and you could go to a walk-in clinic for about a hundred bucks, but many times they're limited. They're only allowed to give a 30-day supply of medication. They're not allowed to, to prescribe insulin for diabetics, for example. Uh, we have a lot of a young adults who were on 10 care and the day they turn 18, they no longer have insurance, but they still have type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, we have a number of 50 something year old women who were traditional homemakers. They stayed at home and raised the kids and took care of the home while the husband worked and he provided the insurance coverage. Well, now he's died and they're in their fifties and they've never really worked. Um, and they have no health insurance and gosh, guess what? They have some hypertension, um, some prediabetes, some different health issues that need to be managed. Um, and they don't have health insurance, so they can come to me and for as reasonable a price as I can make it, I can help them with that. Um, 
I love diabetics. I love helping people with that. Tons of people that don't have insurance. You have your hardworking 40, 50 year old. Maybe they were a roofer for a roofing company and have worked hard their their whole lives, but their company doesn't provide health insurance. Um, they've let themselves go. They only go somewhere when they're sick. And now all of a sudden they're feeling terrible and they come in and for a hundred dollars, I can do quite a few labs because we have some cash labs we've negotiated with um, lab companies. And wow, guess what? You've got a little bit of renal failure, kidney failure going on because you've probably had high blood pressure for a decade that you've not managed. So let's get you on some blood pressure medicine. Let's work on talking about some ways that you can eat a little bit healthier, maybe lose 10, 20 pounds um, and get you feeling better. And so those probably are the vast majority of the patients that I see because they can't afford to go anywhere else. And I'm sure you've also had, so you're talking about people that can't afford to go somewhere else, but this is a different model too for some people who maybe are frustrated with the existing model, right? The insurance model. And, you know, can do you have patients, I assume you do, that have come in and, and were going to see doctors in that more traditional model, weren't getting their health uh, issues addressed, but maybe came to you and because of the different model, you were able to help them as well. Correct. I'm, I'm pretty holistic in my approach. Um, and so probably one of the biggest growing groups we have is the 65 plus where they have the Medicare. They can get certain visits covered, but maybe they don't want a statin just because they have diabetes. Maybe their their cholesterol is actually good, but their doctor's pushing a statin or maybe the, the cholesterol is high. But instead of a statin, they want someone that's going to take time and say, hey, um, these are some dietary strategies you can incorporate. Here's a couple of supplements that might help you lower it without the need of a statin. Um, these are the things that we can do to make your life better. I have a ton of people that are tired of getting pills thrown at them. And I promise you, I still prescribe my fair amount of, of prescriptions, probably more than I would like. But um, I believe that that pharmaceuticals have their place, but maybe we rush to them too quickly. Um, so maybe if you come in with some depression and you're not suicidal, you're not homicidal, but wow, you just haven't been feeling good. Instead of us going straight to the Lexapro, which we know is obesogenic, maybe we could do some neurotransmitter testing in your first morning urine or, um, you know, maybe, hey, let's check you for anemia. Maybe you have some iron deficiency anemia and that's dragging you down and making you feel bad. Um, we can do whole body nutrition testing where we look at uh, the nutrients in your body and say, hey, let's let's balance this out. And almost none of that's covered by insurance. But gosh, it makes people feel so much better. Right now, there, there's still a barrier that you face and that people in Tennessee face and in several other states around the country. And it's called scope of practice. And I want to talk about that a little bit because that's ultimately what this show is about is breaking these these government imposed barriers and scope of practice is one of those now so is direct primary care there's a lot of places where you can't do direct primary care a lot of states uh, where you can't it's it's not uh you're not able to do direct primary care but but also the scope of uh scope of practice issue is a big one Explain explain what scope of practice is first and foremost, and then we'll get into maybe what you're doing to try and change scope of practice. Sure. So in Tennessee, uh, for me to become a nurse practitioner, first I had to have my Bachelor of Science um, in nursing and have an RN license. Then I went through a two and a half year program um, that was academic intensive, and then I had 
I don't even remember. I think three or 400 hours of clinicals where I worked under a, an established nurse practitioner physician and they shadowed me and I treated patients to, to gain that understanding and knowledge. And then I, I set in on my, um, my certification through the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I had to take a board exam to prove that I was fit to practice as a family nurse practitioner. Once you do that, you get your license, but to be able to practice, to be able to see that first patient, to be able to write a prescription, you have to have what's called a collaborative practice agreement. That is an agreement between you and a medical doctor or a DO in your field. So in other words, um, if I, being family, I really need to have a physician overseeing me that's that works in family or has enough training in family that is considered adequate. Um, once that collaborative practice agreement is established, by law, the physician has to review and sign 20% of the charts I create on patients. If I write a controlled substance, such as three days of hydrocodone if someone's broken an arm, or if I write Adderall for someone that has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the um, the physician has to sign off on 100% of those charts. In addition, they have to have a site visit once a month. Um, literally, they can walk onto the property and walk off, and that counts as a site visit. I, it, I have to pay them to do that. So, uh, you know, most doctors don't want to do that for free. So then you negotiate a, a price to pay them. And for most of us, it's 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 quite a bit a year. And I do want to take a moment and say that my collaborative practice physician is an absolutely wonderful person. I could not be more blessed, but it does hinder my ability to to do things. Now, I could probably have a pulmonary function test machine here to check people's breathing for asthma and COPD um, if I didn't have to pay a, a collaborative practice um, physician each month. You know, there are things that I can offer to my 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 community and my patients if I didn't have to use that extra money. Sure. In addition to that, what if my collaborative physician gets sick? I have to shut my doors if something were to happen to him until I can find another collaborative practice physician. So it's about delivery of care to patients. There's one other issue in the insurance realm that people ignore. If, if you've ever been to a large practice, say, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but say cardiology group, you, you you have a heart condition and you go see a cardiologist from time to time and you happen to see a nurse practitioner that works for the cardiologist, which is perfectly fine and wonderful. But the physician sticks his head in the door and goes, hey, how are you today? And then leaves. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because Medicare requires uh, payment. Nurse practitioners get paid 85 percent of what a, a physician gets paid. So if I code a certain code and I'm a nurse practitioner, basically I get paid 15% less than an MD that does the same chart and the same codes because he's got MD and I've got FMP. Mm -hmm. um, if the doctor is not intimately involved in the treatment decisions of that patient and has not seen that patient, they are not allowed to sign off to get that 15%. What a lot of large practices are doing in hospitals is they will, they will staff with nurse practitioners and physician assistants and then have the MD sign off on 100% of the charts so they can get that extra 15%. Technically, that's a Medicare fraud, but it's happening all over the place. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and one of the issues I guess I'd point out in this is health care, health 
delivery of healthcare is expensive in a lot of cases because there is there, there is an insurance uh, component to this and they have to take their cut, right? And so that makes it expensive. What you're talking about here with scope of practice, there is a cut there too because you have to have this physician um, uh, overseeing your work. You have to pay that person. So that drives up the cost of healthcare delivery to your to your patients as well, correct? Correct. There are so many unnecessary uh, layers in healthcare that drive up the costs and all of that prevents proper care being given to patients, particularly the poor. Yeah, right. Okay. So, you know, we've seen this, particularly when the pandemic happened, we saw a lot of governors around the country that, that, that made the rules. I think our system, our healthcare system was not it was not ready for a pandemic, right? So we had so many issues came up during the pandemic where governors were just caught like, uh-oh, what do we do now? Uh, there, there were, there's the telehealth issue where people couldn't use telehealth, but, but we're telling them, you know, if you're sick, stay home, don't come to the doctor. Um, and so governors had to do emergency orders to allow for telehealth. In Tennessee, you had the same issue on scope of practice. And, and in the 2020 pandemic, the Governor Bill Lee allowed scope of practice through an executive order. So what did that do for the people of Tennessee? And why are we not still doing it if it was a good idea then? Right. That's the same question I've been asking. In my situation, it didn't make a difference because Um, I have a contract with my collaborative that said I am required to give 45 day notice to sever that contract. Same with him. And so I didn't know how long that was going to last. And so say Billy had done that for three months and then I severed the contract with my physician. And then suddenly I needed a physician in three months. I wasn't going to then probably be able to get him back because who would have blamed him if he had said, forget you. So I continued to pay my collaborative physician throughout the pandemic, and he continued to review my charts. We we continued to practice as if it was the way it's always been, because I felt like I didn't business-wise have any other option. Um, But yes, I've said that many times. If if it was good enough during a pandemic for me to be able to practice independently, why suddenly two years later— Am I considered unsafe unless I have a collaborative? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, so, the, but there, the answer there is that there's interests that don't want you to be able to practice, right? I assume there are lots of people who are opposed to scope of practice, but again, that's because they financially benefit from not allowing you to practice. Uh, who would those be? I I think it's the large health systems. I've been told that approximately 92% of nurse practitioners in Tennessee are employed by large health systems. Mm -hmm. I've also been told by multiple nurse practitioners that they have been warned by their employer if they get politically active and pushing for full practice authority, they will be fired. Um, So it goes back to that 15%. If you're a large medical group, and you lose 15% of the money you've got going in because let's face mm-hmm. it, the CEOs of these health systems get paid millions of dollars. They don't want to lose their millions of dollars, regardless of how little they're paying the frontline workers. But 15% cut, if you're predominantly Medicare or Medicaid, is going to hurt. So they have a financial vested interest to keep things the way it is so that they can continue to line their pockets. 
Yeah, one of the things we talk about on this show a lot is, you know, the ordinary the ordinary citizen, the ordinary person who doesn't does, isn't able to go hire the big lobbyists and everybody else and they're they're forgotten in this process a lot and I think that's who you're talking about are, are ordinary people who they want to have their health care delivered this way but there are there are big go, uh, big government and big corporate forces that are trying to keep them from doing that because they want to have a corner on the market for themselves and that's essentially I think what's happening with scope of practice and Many of these issues, telehealth, many others. Um, so, I, I guess um, how, how do you how do you go about doing that? It sounds like you're working on getting scope of practice passed in Tennessee. Um, and how do you go about doing that? Are you organizing other nurse practitioners to do that? I have been trying <laughs> <laughs> um, again because so many are employed by large health systems and right. feel threatened if they get active. They they would rather stay silent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm constantly communicating with with the assembly members, and I, I honestly I'm so frustrated. I'm to the point I'm ready to run for office myself <laughs> um, to yeah. try and get <laughs> to try and get things done because we aren't being listened to and. You know, I can tell them all I want, but then they go down there and they have these lobbyists that just lie and make up stuff to try and get what they want and to keep things the way it is. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. I I think (laughs) I think about the Bible verse that when Jesus overturns the tables and said, you've made my father's house into a den of of vipers. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like the Tennessee General Assembly and there are some wonderful people in the assembly. Don't get me wrong. But when you walk in and all those lobbyists and you just hear the lies spewing out of their mouth, it feels like a den of vipers that you're up against. Well, you know, I would I would assume that a mother who wouldn't give up on her daughter and would go change a career to to help get her daughter in a better place from a health standpoint probably isn't going to give up. I'm guessing you probably will end up running, running at some point for office because that might be the next step uh, to get this changed. Um, what, what can people do? Let's say somebody's listening and they're thinking, man, I, I want to participate either in Tennessee or somewhere else. How can, how can someone help you and help the rest of us affect change in this area with regard to nurse practitioners and, and scope of practice? I think step one is look up who their state representative and their state senator is. You can go to the Tennessee General Assembly website. And, and it's got a place where you can click find my legislator and you can put in your address and it'll tell you. And then pick up the phone and give them a call and say, hey, I want full practice authority for nurse practitioners. And, and what are you going to do to help us make it happen? You know, always be respectful and nice. Um, they can also email me. My email address is is four letters. It's Debbie at NurseDebbie.com. D-E-B-I is how the Debbie spelled. Okay. And I can point them in the right direction. Um, because to me, it's not about me. It's not about my business. It is about delivery of health care to Tennessee and making it better. All right. Well, Debbie, thanks for t- taking the time to tell your story. And thanks for, you know, obviously for caring enough about your daughter, but then about your community for trying to to give them the same options that you wanted for your daughter and uh, for, for entering into this fight. So I thank you for taking time today and telling your story. Appreciate it.
Well, thank you very much for having me. And and ever since my daughter became sick, I, I feel like the mission of my life has been Proverbs 31 verses 8 and 9. Can't say I always do it perfectly, but uh, I'm fumbling through the best I can. And, and we just have to look out for one another. I, I once heard someone say either we all matter or none of us matter. And that's really how it is. Either we all matter or none of us do. Yeah, that's, and that's so true. And, and we have to fight for the choices and the freedom that other people want to have, even though sometimes it may not be the freedom that we necessarily want to have for ourselves. We always have to fight uh, for others to make it a free and a prosperous uh, and healthy country. So thank you, Debbie. I appreciate it. If you'd like to get connected with an Americans for Prosperity state chapter, be sure to email me at jeff at AmericanPotential.com. The American Potential podcast. We're always working on stories to help keep you inspired, and informed. And the best way to stay connected with us is by liking and subscribing to our channels. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you know of a great story of someone that's working on expanding freedom and opportunity in the healthcare area or some other area, and we you think we should share that story, be sure to go to our website, which is AmericanPotential.com and fill out our share your story section. All right. Thank you for listening to American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.